Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, why is America's healthcare system so expensive? It's a bit of a detective act working out where all of this extra money goes because American health outcomes are not much better than anywhere else. And could a new cryptocurrency help Venezuela's ailing economy? It doesn't seem that this cryptocurrency is necessarily real, though. It's been sort of roundly mocked in the the press, and uh, it doesn't necessarily have a lot of the components you would want a cryptocurrency to have to be real. First, in an unprecedented move, President Donald Trump has intervened to block a $142 billion takeover of Qualcomm by Broadcom, a rival chipmaker. Mr. Trump is stopping the deal because of national security concerns, namely that China might overtake the US in critical 5G technology. This comes just days after Mr. Trump used a national security justification that dates from the Cold War to impose 25% tariffs on steel imports to America and 10% on aluminium. Now that Mr. Trump has set those protectionist wheels in motion, he is opening the way for exemptions. But China, whose steel overproduction has long annoyed America, is preparing its reaction. Simon Rabinovich, our Asia economics editor, is on the line. Simon, China has two big trade moves in the last week to respond to. What's it thinking? Well, I think the message is is being heard loud and clear in Beijing that uh, China is increasingly an economy non grata uh, in, in America. I mean, the Broadcom-Qualcomm deal is intriguing in the sense that Broadcom is not actually a Chinese company. It's a Singaporean company. Uh, but there were concerns that if the deal went through, it would hurt American R&D uh, in, in the chip sector. And this would have knock-on consequences for American competition with uh, China's big chip makers, especially Huawei. As for the uh, the steel tariffs, directly for China, it's actually not that big of a blow. If you look at overall China's steel and aluminum exports to America, uh, it's only about 0.02% of Chinese GDP. So directly, it really does not cost China all that much. Uh, but symbolically, it's very clear that uh, America is increasingly gunning for China in trade relations. Uh, and this is really seen as, as the first shot, a small shot, but the first shot uh, in what has the potential to be a, a protracted trade war between the two powers. So this is part of a whole agenda for Mr. Trump, uh, an anti-trade agenda, essentially. He's worried about trade surpluses that other countries have with America. And also there's a long running issue between America and China on intellectual property theft, isn't there? That's right. And of course, when Mr. Trump was on the campaign trail. He was talking about having big tariffs across the board on all Chinese goods as as high as 45%. Uh, You know, more than a year into his administration, he's yet to take any very strong action against China. But the the feeling, the concern in Beijing 
is that the steel and aluminum tariffs are the first step towards something more serious. Um, so we're seeing two possible lines of action um, from America. One is a demand that China directly cut its trade surplus with America. Uh, depending on what number you use, China has a roughly $375 billion bilateral trade surplus. Mr. Trump has demanded that China cut that by $100 billion. And then the second course of action is, as you say, about intellectual property. Uh, America has had two sort of long-running simultaneous investigations. One was one investigation which resulted in the steel tariffs. The other is an investigation into China's uh, intellectual property violations and practices. Uh, the conclusion to that is expected in the coming months. And some people think that America might demand a, a very, very large penalty from China uh, as compensation for what it deems to be China's theft of uh, intellectual property over the years. And that's something that really has Beijing very concerned. It's interesting. There seem to be two sort of fronts here. One is within the WTO, because as I understand it, the the IP investigations are using rules that the WTO would recognise. But then this question of just saying you must cut your exports to us, that's really not WTO compliant, is it? If tariffs are placed on China without any kind of WTO justification, that, that would obviously be against WTO rules. If, however, it's simply moral suasion and Trump saying, you've got to do something, you've got to act on this to uh, improve the state of our relationship. Uh, that is something that can be conducted outside of the WTO process. And so far, that seems to be the way in which he's approaching uh, this $100 billion demand. And China, for its part, you know, recognizes that, you know, Mr. Trump is somebody who likes to be able to present kind of these big round numbers um, to the American public and to, you know, theoretically to deliver big victories. Uh, and so they're thinking about ways in which they might be able to placate Mr. Trump. Uh, they already buy a lot of soybeans, a lot of aircraft from uh, America. They could begin to buy more energy, both natural gas and petroleum from America as well. So there is thought being given to ways in which they could give Trump at least the appearance uh, of a victory on these trade issues. So there are really sort of two ways this could go. One is that it ends up being, you know, not really very much, all a bit unpleasant and, you know, some symbolic victories. And the other is that it could all degenerate horribly with, you know, tit for tat retaliation and really a broader trade war. Do you have any sense of how people in China think this is going to go? Even just a few months ago, they felt that they had Mr. Trump's number. You know, he was here in November for a big state visit and they laid on a massive banquet for him. And you know, to this day, Mr. Trump talks about how he was so well treated by China. Um, so they thought they, they had his number. Uh, they've been surprised uh, by, you know, first the downfall of Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, uh, who was uh, China's main point of contact. Uh, and then also the ascendancy of uh, Peter Navarro, Mr. Trump's trade advisor, who's extremely hawkish on, on China, you know, the author of a book, Death by China. And so that's really thrown China for a loop and has had them, you know, reevaluating where they actually stand with Mr. Trump. So I think for starters, they are going to try to, as I said, to you know, try to give Mr. Trump some kind of a victory, a feeling like he, he is getting ahead. But if there are uh, big sanctions placed on, on China for 
uh, intellectual property violations, then I think we will begin to see uh, in retaliation from China. They're not going to be able to stand idly by uh, if, if Trump is really making life difficult for them. Uh, they might start by trying to take the moral high ground in the WTO. Uh, that potentially will have you know, very negative implications for the world if China is actually successful in the, in the WTO and they rule against America on Chinese trade actions. Uh, that, of course, will have Mr. Trump questioning America's involvement in the WTO, which, which would be very negative for the world. And in terms of tit-for-tat retaliation, China, although it has a big bilateral surplus with America, it does also have a lot of leverage. It has obviously a huge marketplace, which is very enticing uh, for American companies, so it can begin to choke off access. Uh, it can redirect a lot of its purchases that it currently makes in America to other countries. And when you speak to Chinese economists, you know, they've sort of gamed out what the vulnerability is of America to a trade war, of China to a trade war. And they are, uh, you know, pessimistic about a trade war generally. They see it as a lose-lose proposition, but they believe that they actually will have longer staying power. Uh, so if Trump really is serious about dragging China into the mire, uh, China will go with him every step of the way. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you very much. Next, every year America spends about $5,000 more per year on healthcare than other rich countries do, yet its people are not any healthier. Patrick Fowles, the Economist's Schumpeter columnist, has been investigating where all the money goes. Hi, Patrick. Hi. America's healthcare system is so complicated. Is that part of what makes it so expensive? Yeah, it's a bit of a detective act working out where all of this extra money goes because American health outcomes are not much better than anywhere else. Um, so simple things like life expectancy, for example, is not superior to, to many parts of the rich world. So the system, as far as we can tell, has six layers and, and between the patient and the actual provider of, of drugs or, or services, there are layers of middlemen, insurance companies, pharmacies, benefit managers, wholesalers, all these uh, strange companies which all seem to be making enormous margins. Is it that the money leaks out a bit at every stage or did your research find that one particular stage absorbs an unusually large part of the extra cost? Well, to, to start with, if you take that $5,000 of extra spending that um, America does per person, it has to be pointed out the vast majority of that is, is through simple inefficiency or gold plating of services. So just purely wasting money. But roughly 5% is attributable to kind of rent seeking or, what, if you like, excess profits by companies um, who seem to just be making an abnormal amount of money. Our guess is that that rent seeking equates to roughly $200 per person uh, in America per year. And the interesting thing is that most people blame the big drug companies, right? In the election, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump bashed up big pharma for selling products at exorbitant prices. But in fact, our sense is that the bulk of that $200 of excess profits per person per year is actually being made by the kind of lower profile companies who are really intermediaries in the process and are, are if you like, skimming fees uh, off the customers and off insurance companies uh, as they purchase medical services. So just for non-technical listeners, this expression rent seeking, what do you mean by that? Well, it's really um, the, the, the difference between pro the profits companies actually make and the profits that you would hope they made if the market was completely competitive. Uh, so it takes a look at the amount of money they've sunk into their businesses and how risky they are. And adjusting for those two things 
compares the actual profits which, with, with the sort of theoretical profits in a competitive scenario. And the difference economists also often call rent-seeking is also obviously from the point of view of, uh, of the people running the business and their shareholders, that's the cream they're desperate to get. But hopefully if a system uh, is regulated and operated properly, it should be impossible for companies to, to, to make huge amounts of excess profits. So something's wrong with that part of America's healthcare market. What can be done about it? Well, a, a brilliant question, and many many people have gone slightly crazy trying to resolve this question. I mean, two observations. One is that this sort of mix of complexity, subsidies, heavy regulation, heavy lobbying, and opacity, it is not just restricted to the healthcare market. It is actually, in some respects, quite similar to how the, the mortgage machine worked before the crisis, these very complex systems which uh, seem to be designed to skim money from the ultimate um, consumer. Uh, in the case of healthcare, I think one thing that has definitely made things worse is consolidation. So uh, of those six layers, uh, almost all now are dominated by uh, three to four very big companies who probably have too much power. So if you're looking at the system, one solution I think is probably antitrust which is to try and make sure the other six layers, uh, each of the six layers are more competitive. Uh, but the other thing I think is, is the role that technology could have. And this is the one optimistic part of um, this story. Okay, so tell us what technology could do to help then. Well, it, it is a sort of classic fertile territory for, for Silicon Valley, really. You, big pockets of profits, very inefficient systems. And what we're beginning to see is the tech companies step in with some trepidation, it must be admitted. But Amazon is probably uh, the one that's furthest ahead, and it's applied for various licenses to, to wholesale uh, drugs across certain states. It's teamed up with Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan in an attempt to offer new health insurance packages. And it's not impossible to imagine that uh, if we were to buy uh, drugs in America, you know, you could go to a, a, an Amazon page where they'd be able to check the prices of various similar drugs and make adjustments for you know, your health insurance policy and other things to give you a sense of what the best underlying price is. And this spectre is something that has begun to um, get the attention of Wall Street in the last three or four months, with people beginning to worry that these middlemen companies with their enormous fat margins may be about to come under a competitive assault. So what's bad for them, though, would be massively good for the American healthcare consumer. Thanks so much, Patrick. Thank you. If you've got any thoughts on President Trump's trade tariffs or America's healthcare system, get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Finally, the world is abuzz with blockchain and cryptocurrencies. The latest country to try to cash in on the crypto craze is Venezuela. President Nicolas Maduro is launching a new cryptocurrency called the Petro on March the 20th. Will this save the flailing Venezuelan economy? Alice Fullwood, our finance writer, is here. Alice, is this for real, this currency? Well, it certainly seems that the Venezuelan government are trying to cash in on the cryptocurrency craze. They have struggled to sort of raise uh, finances because of American sanctions and the fact that they've gone kind of bankrupt. So they certainly are sort of looking for a way to raise funds. It doesn't seem that this cryptocurrency is necessarily real, though. It's been sort of roundly mocked in the in the press and uh, it doesn't necessarily have a lot of the components you would want a cryptocurrency to have to be real. What are those components, briefly? The Venezuelan government claims that it's backed by oil, uh, but that, according to their white paper, doesn't really seem to be the case. Instead, it's sort of loosely pegged to the oil price. 
And secondly, you want a cryptocurrency to work properly to be decentralized. Uh, that means that a network of uh, individuals validates the sort of rules of the currency rather than a centralized agency. The Venezuelan government have picked a very small newcomer called the NEM movement to list their cryptocurrency. And that, because it's so small, makes it hard for it to be decentralized over a long period of time. So who's going to be able to buy the Petro next week and why would they want to? At first, the Petro is only available to those buying it in sort of dollars, euros, yen, uh, so international currencies or Bitcoin and Ethereum, so sort of the two major cryptocurrencies, which means that it's not really available to Venezuelan citizens. As for why they would want to, that is not abundantly clear. As I've mentioned, it is not really backed by oil, as the Venezuelan government have claimed. And it's being issued by the Venezuelan government, which have sort of proven very poor caretakers of their currency, the Bolivar. I had no idea that you couldn't buy it if you were a Venezuelan. So, uh, I mean, basically what this is, is a bet on the Venezuelan economy and its fantastic prospects. I don't even know that it would necessarily be a hedge against against that either. It's, it's really not clear uh, uh, what it's there for. But it's certainly not there to help Venezuelans. As, as we've mentioned, they, they can't actually buy it, at least not in the issuance next week. There have been suggestions from the government that they might be able to in the fullness of time. So the Bolivar has lost almost all its value in the last year. And then you know the years before that, it was losing value too. Venezuela is in, basically in hyperinflation. Uh, some thought when the Petro was first mentioned that this might be an attempt to introduce a new, more solid currency, because presumably the government's can't just keep printing it. That's kind of the point of cryptocurrencies. Right. So this is where the decentralization is very important. Initially, the Petro is going to be launched with a fixed amount of uh, 100 million tokens is all they're issuing. If the currency were decentralized, and that 100 million would be backed by this sort of network of people validating that no one was printing more currency than the 100 million that was supposed to be issued at first. But if the Venezuelan government or if another player sort of takes over the entire market, then they are validating transactions and they could, in theory, debase that currency as well. Why is Venezuela in such dire straits? Venezuela is currently experiencing some pretty severe hyperinflation. Uh, Inflation there is about 50% per month, which means that prices double every 50 days. The way they got into this situation was uh, the government started financing its wide fiscal deficit by printing money. Once they'd started printing money, it becomes very hard to stop and you sort of entrench this idea that the currency is devaluing in citizens. This is why they need to potentially introduce a new, harder currency to help support the economy. Thanks, Alice. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 